how many of you guys have heard the song by Casey Musgraves? If you're a country fan, you've probably heard it. Um, it's called Biscuits. And the, the chorus goes like this. Just tell your own row, raise your own babies, smoke your own smoke, grow your own daisies, mend your own fences and own your own crazy, mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy. So if you come from the deep south, these terms are very common. And my grandmother used to say, mind your own biscuits and then life will be great. It will be crazy, but it's supposed to be gravy. Um, and uh, so the idea, of course, is mind your own business. We just, in the South, we say things in a kind way because, you know, there's that Southern hospitality. We have to keep that whole thing rolling, right? So we just tell people to go away quietly and kindly, right? So while, of course, this idea of minding your own business has its merit, especially if you have someone in your congregation by the name of Bertha Better Than You. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard that song too. If not, you should listen to it. Um, it's hilarious. I forget who's, Roger, would you remember who did that? I can't remember who did it, but it's funny. Um, but basically, the chorus is, uh, you know, the day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church in that little country town. I can't pronounce it. Ray Stevens, thank you. Okay, I think it's funny. I, and you guys are probably like, I don't know why he thinks he's funny. Can't even tell a proper joke. Well, if you tithe better, you get better jokes. He said the T word. It's not going to be one of those. Okay, quick, quick disclaimer. I mess up my own jokes, guys. Quick disclaimer. The views of this lunatic on stage are not necessarily the views shared by Shalom Macon. Okay, moving on. So, in all seriousness, what I would like to share with you, and there are three things that I would like for you guys to walk away with uh, as we talk about the, what I like to call, that ginger heifer and her meddling, um, is what we do either contaminates or purifies others. It can either bless or curse. It can build up or it can tear down. And also, we have to be willing to restore, bless, build up, and bring purity in the lives of those around us. And oftentimes, this will even be at the risk of being exposed to what that person is going through. But as I heard once by a, uh, a minister that I thought was very good, he said, a true friend is good, but it doesn't mean he is also kind. Because here in the South, we're kind, right? We, we're nice to everybody. Oh, bless their heart. That usually means they're about to say something bad about you, by the way, if you didn't know that. But they figure if they bless your heart, that gives them the okay. So you hear that, just run away. So you might be like, what does this have to do with a cow? So as you might know, of course, uh, if you've read the Torah portion this week, one of the most unusual, confusing, and as the sages say, supra-rational commands in the Torah. We are not given a reason. Hashem just says to do it. So it's the ashes of the red heifer. 
So uh, just in case you didn't know, we're going to go ahead and read the portion, or not the whole thing, uh, but this particular section, um, because I think it's important to actually hear what's done. I think it'll help what I'm trying to bumble out of my mouth make more sense. So in Numbers 19, beginning in verse 1, beginning, not burgeoning, it says, And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, This is the statute of the Torah which Hashem commanded, saying, Speak to Bnei Israel that they are to bring to you a flawless red heifer, on which there is no blemish, and on which there has never been a yoke. Give her to Eleazar the Kohen, and he shall take her outside of the camp, and, sla- and she is to be slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar the Kohen is to take some of the blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While watching, he is to burn the heifer, her hide, flesh, blood, and refuse. The Kohen is to take some of the cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool and cast them into the midst of the burning heifer. Afterward, the Kohen is to wash his clothes and to bathe his flesh with the water, and afterward, he may come back into the camp. Still, the Kohen is unclean until evening. Also, the one burning is to wash his clothes and to bathe his flesh with the water, and he will be unclean until evening. The clean man is to gather up the ashes of the heifer and to put them in a clean place outside the camp. They are to be for the community of B'nai Israel to use as water for purification from sin. The one who gathers the heifer's ashes is also to wash his clothes as well and to be unclean until evening. And it will be a permanent statute for B'nai Israel and for the outside, those, excuse me, and for the outsider living among them. Whoever touches any dead body will be unclean for seven days. He is to purify himself on the third and the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone touching the dead body of, a, of any man uh, who does not purify himself defiles Hashem's tabernacle, and that person will be cut off from Israel. Therefore, the, uh, excuse me, because the cleansing water was not sprinkled on him, he is unclean and his uncleanliness will remain on him. This is the Torah for whenever a person dies in a tent. Anyone entering the tent or anyone inside the tent will be unclean seven days. Any open container not having a lid fastened to it will also be unclean. Anyone Uh, out in the field who touches a dead body, whether killed by the sword or killed by a natural cause, or touches a human bone or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean one, uh, they are to take some of the ash of the burnt purification offering and pour some flesh, flesh, flesh water. They are to pour some fresh water into a jar then a clean person shall take the his, some of the hyssop, dip it into the water, and sprinkle it on the tent, all the furnishings, and the people who were there, as well as the one touching the bone, the, uh, the one killed, or the corpse, or the grave. The clean person will sprinkle the unclean one for on the third and seventh days. He is to purify himself on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he is to wash his clothes, bathe himself with water, and at evening he will be clean." 
However, the man who is unclean but does not purify himself will be cut off from the community. He has defiled the sanctuary of Hashem since the cleansing water was not sprinkled on him. He is unclean. This will be a permanent ordinance for them. The one sprinkling the cleansing water is also to wash his clothes and anyone touching the cleansing water will be unclean until evening. Anything touched by the unclean person becomes unclean and anyone touching it will be unclean until evening. And you're going, wow. So I really think, even though obviously there's no reason, obviously, this is the whole thing about the ashes of the red heifer, it doesn't say why. Well, this doesn't make any sense. So we're going to unpack it a little bit, see if, uh, see if maybe we can glean something from it. So one of the things that I wanted to emphasize before we get into that, though, is, is something that's very, very important when it comes to the offerings, when it comes to the sacrifices, when it comes to the temple rituals. We aren't exposed to that because there's no temple maybe be rebuilt soon in our days. But in the meantime, we have to learn as much as we can. And one thing that, of course, struck me with this translation that I was kind of surprised it translated that way is in verse 9, it calls it a purification from sin. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, Judaism teaches that one of the highest mitzvahs, one of the most rewarding things that we can do for someone is to escort their dead body to the grave. So how then is it a sin to do that? Then you have to bring a sin offering, that this, this heifer is a purification from sin. So I wanted to share with you what they just tell us. Rashi tells us that chatat is the Hebrew word. Chatat can mean sin, but it at its literal sense does not. Chatat comes from the root word chata, which means to purify. So chatat is purification. So it would probably be more accurately translated, and I don't want to you know, challenge a translator. They know more than I do. But based on my understanding of this, it would probably be best to translate it as purification offering because it is to bring purity, not to cleanse from sin. There is no sin in touching a dead body. And we can see that other examples of a similar situation where it might translate and say they have to bring a sin offering is after a woman gives birth. And so some may say, well, you know, it says to bring a sin offering and then there's this discussion, well, what sin did she commit? And, you know, some guys say, well, she cussed at me when this thing was going down. <laughs> We're never doing this again. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. Now, I can say my wife did not say that. My wife is really weird. She's right in the middle of a contraction. She's like, how are you doing? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're asking me how I'm doing. I, no, I'm not breathing right now, but neither are you. Um, so uh, so I, I actually didn't experience that. So my wife wouldn't need to bring it if that was the reason because she didn't curse me. Thank God. So, um, but it's actually the same thing. We're talking about uh, coming into contact with death. So, you know, a woman that is giving childbirth, the life and death are literally right there. The, the child can be born fine and everything go great, and then it may not. You know, the child may die, God forbid, or, or the mother may die, God forbid. Uh, and of course, we know that's become rare, but it does happen. And so, so, but the thing that we do see, the commonalities in these different things where it says to bring this, this sin offering, there, the commonality is that life and death are usually hanging in the balance somewhere. And so, uh, so family purity, uh, you know, where a man is not to be with his wife during that time of the month, 
that is another thing our sages say, that it is dealing with life and death, and the two should not mix. That is one of the arguments that the sages say for why we don't mix meat and dairy, especially red meat and dairy, because life and death. Milk is the giver of life. We're eating the flesh of a dead animal, and the two should not mix. So we see these commonalities within, and this is just like that. But let's talk a little bit, a, a little bit. That's probably more accurate, by the way, right, Roger? A little bit. He don't know no little. Um, about what it does. So like we talked about, it, it removes the contamination of a corpse. So when we lay a loved one to rest, we are contaminated and we have to go through this purification rite to enter into the temple again. Um, and we actually see an example of this in the Gospels. In John 11:55. it says that they went up to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, and I believe it said early to purify themselves. So uh, one of the thoughts is, is that this, somebody within the group had a corpse contamination and needed to go through purification right before they can enter the temple. And one of the other things I wanted to point out too is that it seems to transfer the contamination, not just get rid of it. It seems to transfer it. So I want you to think about that as, as we move along. But it also allows the temple system to function. I wish Dr. David were here because then everybody could go to him for all the questions. But, because uh, he knows the temple better than anybody in this building. But uh, it allows it to function. Because somebody contaminated by death cannot enter into that temple. Even the priesthood can't. Uh, in fact, it's, the Torah says that the priest himself is not to be, uh, it is not to escort the dead. Um, except for very extenuating circumstances. But in most cases, he is not supposed to be there because he is to remain ritually pure at all times so that he can minister before the Lord at all times. Um, so if we don't have the ashes of the red heifer, we can't purify our priests and our Levites to enter into into minister to Hashem. We can't have the temple. So my understanding would be that we would have to actually find the ashes from the last red heifer 2,000 years ago to do the purification rite. And then the sages tell us the Messiah will, will do the 10th. Uh, there've only been nine, interestingly enough. In the entire time, the temp both temples, only nine heifers. So that's pretty cool. Um, now, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, of course, you know, being a messianic synagogue, we would be remiss if we did not mention our master. Uh, and of course, within, uh, within any circle of Yeshua faith, whether it be uh, some branch of Christianity, whether it be messianic Judaism, or if it's the Hebrew roots movement, there's, there's something that is very prominent, and it's the idea that Yeshua is the ultimate sacrifice. So since he did the sacrifice uh, you know, for, for us, that there's no longer a need for a temple. So what I wanted to do, of course, we, we don't believe that, um, and because if we did, we'd have to throw out most of the Bible because it says that there will be a temple in the Messianic age. Uh, so what I wanna do is I wanna look at a few things that, that the apostles used so that maybe we can unpack it a little bit, understand a little bit more why they used that and what the intent was behind it. So, um, you know, it talks about in the book of Hebrews that he removes the contamination of sin from death. And this is in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. 
and it pulls from the same passages we just read that just as the ashes of the red heifer remove the corpse contamination, so too our master's sacrifice removes us from death into life. Does that make sense? That's the analogy that he's pulling from. He's saying just like this allows you to enter into God's court, into his presence, so too the master's sacrifice allows you on a heavenly level. The book of Hebrews is talking about on a spiritual level, not a physical one. The, we still need the ashes, the red heifer for the physical, but the master did something on a spiritual level that we don't fully understand. But that's what the writer of Hebrews is drawing the analogy from, is from this red heifer and that it allows us to enter. Because remember what it said, the third and the seventh days are the days you're supposed to do it. And if you don't do it, you can't go into God's presence, into his house. You have to do it this way. And so what does the master say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Just like the ashes of the red heifer. Does he replace it? No, it's a symbol and a type and a likeness. And it's an analogy that our sages drew from when they're trying to explain to us what the master did. So uh, also, interestingly enough, he is called the clean person in Jewish tradition. And so if you remember when we read earlier, it says that there's a clean person that is to take those ashes and to actually just you know, put them on the person. And I thought that was very interesting. And so it says, it says here, it says, the Holy One, blessed is he, is called a man who is clean, who shall gather the ashes of the heifer. Now the ashes uh, which need to be gathered symbolize, the Israel and, uh, symbolize Israel in exile. The explanation is that a man who is clean is none other than King Messiah. He is, he is made unclean by the sickness and the strokes that have come upon him to atone for the iniquities of Israel, as it says in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 98 A and B. Uh, his name is the leper of the house of Rabbi, as it is said in Isaiah 53, 4, surely your sickness he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So in other words, you know, we have uh, in, in our thoughts and, and in the teachings of the apostles, we have this idea that he was pure without blemish and so forth. And so all the offerings, of course, had to be. And so on a spiritual level, he was clean. But he had to become unclean in order for us to get purified. And that's something that's interesting too about every person that comes into contact with this red heifer process is rendered unclean. So the question is, is how can something that is providing cleanliness render the person who is doing the process unclean? Good question. So uh, the, other, the other thing that I wanted to point out too was uh, another, uh, let's see, this is a Targum Yonatan. So this is actually an Aramaic translation of the Torah around the time of our master and kind of almost like the living Bible. Some of you might remember that. It wasn't an actual translation. It's kind of a paraphrase to make it a little more relatable. Uh, so this is kind of the same thing. And it's, uh, it's actually... Uh, translating Ezekiel 36, 25, and it says, and I 
will forgive your sins as though you had been purified by the waters of sprinkling and by the ashes of the heifer sin offering. You shall be cleansed of all your defilements. So I hope that's, I hope that's helping it go, ah, it's starting to make sense. There's, there's, a, there's a pattern here. There's a likeness. Uh, Hashem is trying to show us something. And so uh, actually uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul actually pulls from this same idea. Uh, so starting in verse 16, he says, what agreement does God's temple have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, as Hashem, uh, be separate, says Hashem. Touch no unclean thing, then I will take you in and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Hashem Tzavot. So the idea is drawing close to God, getting it, coming into his presence and doing it the way he says to. Um, so I have three young children and it probably becomes more challenging when, you get old, when they get older, especially when you get older. Um, but you may have certain things that you want them to do. You give certain instructions and then they decide, well, instead of cleaning my room, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to find these beautiful flowers to bring to my mother. Now, of course, mothers love this, right? But probably what they would love more is their kids actually do what they tell them, right? Well, Hashem has given us instructions. This is how I want you to approach me. This is, this is how we can connect. So while the flowers are great, we need to connect this way. So the master, like I said before, like the red heifer, he purifies from mortality. Uh, or we might say sin, which leads to death. So what can we learn from this? As I said, you know, kind of alluding to before, the temple system is not about the consequences of sin. It's not about appeasing an angry, bloodthirsty, and vengeful God. It's about creating space for mortality and immortality to meet. But what about these sprinklings? So I asked you to remember the, you know, the third and the seventh days. What are these about? So the sages actually told us something that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, in Hosea 6, 2, they pull from this, and they said this is dealing with the third day purification. So in Hosea 6, 2, it says that after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, and then we will live in his presence. So let us know and let us strive to know Hashem. Like the dawn, his going forth is certain, and he will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain watering the earth. And so the sages say, the third day is dealing with resurrection, where you know, we talk about it in our prayers, we talk about it in the apostolic writings about the, uh, the resurrection of the dead. And of course, for us as believers in Yeshua, another thing that we can look at is maybe that's why the master was raised on the third day. Because it's a, it's a type, it's, it's for us, it's a foreshadowing. We look at it, we go, our sages told us that it would happen this way. And our master being resurrected from the dead, being called the firstborn of the resurrection, and by that, I don't mean that he was just revived like the other people that have been raised from the dead in the past. This is a different resurrection. 
This resurrection is being brought from the corruptible to incorruptibility, as Paul says. Something that hasn't happened yet, except for our master. So the seventh day is dealing with uh, the final redemption, the messianic age. And so uh, in first, or, yeah, first Corinthians, it talks about that. It says, you know, we'll put on incorruptibility. We'll put on immortality. And so our sages tell us that's the image that they understood about why we do it on the seventh day. And, you know, one of the things you probably noticed as we were reading through uh, the passage is you noticed all of these different things that would render something unclean. If uh, someone passed away in a house, uh, or in this case it was a tent, uh, that if there was an unopened container, it would receive contamination. Um, And it also mentioned that if anybody touched something or someone else, there would be an uncleanliness transfer that would happen. And there were certain things that they had to do. Now, they didn't have to go and actually go through the purification rite that it talks about. Uh, That is the person that actually touched the dead body or was in the tent when the person passed away. So what I wanted to share with you about that is that what we do affects others. How we behave, how we carry ourselves, how we walk in God's word has an effect on others. It can actually contaminate them. But at the same time, it can also purify them. Because it takes a pure person to take the ashes and to sprinkle them on. And on top of that, that person has to be willing to be unclean until evening, which means he can't go into the temple until the next day. I just want you to think about that. Somebody is actually saying, you know what? I'm gonna forego standing in the presence of my creator so you can be clean. We have to do that. We can't just rely on somebody saying, mind your own biscuits, life will be gravy. It doesn't work that way. We have to restore one another. That's what Paul's saying when he says, bear one another's burdens. Why? No man can be an island. You cannot be pure and enter into the presence of God without a family of faith building you up, setting themselves aside and saying, you know what? I'm gonna take my time off and I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna prepare those ashes. I'll be unclean till evening, but it's worth it because it restores you, because it allows you to enter back into God's presence. You can't enter until it's done. Me, I just have to wait till evening. It's okay. That's a mitzvah. That's a beautiful thing to do. And as I was reading this, I I just was overwhelmed by that. I was like, wow. And, And I always have wondered, why in the world is everyone else unclean, including the priest, until evening? I don't know. Maybe that's what Hashem is trying to teach us. Maybe. That to restore one person, so many people need to be involved. So many people need to take part in that restoration. Otherwise, it can't happen. That's why we moved here. 700 miles to a place that my allergies have never been worse. Um, I'm 
figuring everybody's going to think I have COVID. We shouldn't worry about that because, you know, Kenneth Copeland got rid of it, right? Have you seen that video? Watch it. It's hilarious. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's, it didn't work. No surprises there. Okay, I'll, I'll hush. Um, so, you know, one of the other things, too, that I would like to share, and I, I meant to do this earlier, one of my favorite rabbis that I like listening to is Rabbi Shlomo Fari. He is from Syria, um, you know, lived in Jerusalem. He's now rabbi, a Sephardic rabbi, uh, in Manhattan. But he, um, he, he, taught, he, he teaches in such a beautiful way. He's just a few years older than me. But he, he talks to these people who probably are quite a bit older than him, but less learned most likely. But he always talks to them in such a loving and respectful way. He calls them rabotai, which means my rabbis. He's talking to his congregants, my rabbis. And when I look at every one of you, now I don't know you guys, I'm sure I learned something, I, I promise, but for the people that I've been with for several years, I look at every one of you and I see something I can learn from. And I think it's beautiful. And so as I was listening to him talk and he's just like, he'll, he'll get just really into it. He's like, Rabotai, Shema Yisrael, listen to what I'm telling you. We can learn from one another. We have to. And also one of the things that the rabbis point out is it doesn't have to be a Kohen that does the ashes. The Kohen just has to take care of the, the initial part. It says in a, a clean person. That means anybody can restore another person. Anybody. So let's do that. Let's bring restoration, especially now. Especially with what we're going through. It's our job you know, a song I absolutely cannot stand is that song that says, we just keep waiting for the world to change. Get off your tuchus and do it. It's our job to bring restoration. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MakinMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.